Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. For me and for my generation, I think that the foremost inspirational figures around peace and justice work are Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. And the civil rights movement has a special mystique about it because it's a movement that was actually successful in radically changing the face of the USA. So I'm honored to have with me here today for Spirit in Action one of the persons on the forefront of the civil rights struggle in Birmingham and Selma, but whose witness and work continue on into urban ministry and inner city transformation in the city where I used to live, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Joseph Elwanger is author of Strength for the Struggle, Insights from the Civil Rights Movement and Urban Ministry, having been vitally involved in efforts within the church and in the community to embrace equality and respect for women, gays and lesbians, immigrants, those who have been incarcerated, as well as the races, Joe modestly shares his ringside role and witness to a number of the most important struggles and advances of the last 50 years. Joseph Elwanger joins us by phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Joe, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. It is my pleasure. I had a rich experience reading Strength for the Struggle, Insights from the Civil Rights Movement, and Urban Ministry. You are the son of a preacher, or maybe you're also the grandson of a preacher. It's really in the family, isn't it? Well, I'm not, not a grandson of a preacher, but I am a son of a pastor, and actually he was a second career pastor after being a teacher for about 10 years. So it's not necessarily DNA, it's a, a real deep sense of calling on the part of my father that he became a pastor. My understanding is that you grew up in the South, is that true? Well, part of my growing up, the first 11 years were in St. Louis, Missouri, and of course that's considered southern by some folks, and Missouri and St. Louis certainly have a lot of southern characteristics, but it's not usually considered part of the South. And then from age 12 on, I did grow up in Selma, Alabama, eighth grade through high school, college, and seminary. Home was Selma. Well, this is the second time that I've had you on my Spirit in Action program. I met you back, I guess, eight years ago. You were up visiting Eau Claire, helping us start Jonah up here, the congregational-based organizing tool that's connected with statewide, with wisdom, and nationally with Gamaliel. 
So you do have a, an active role continuing with wisdom? I am very active as a volunteer. I am not a, a paid organizer as I was from 2002 to 2012, but still very active and especially in what we call the 11 by 15 campaign, which is the campaign to bring down prison population in Wisconsin from 22,000 to 11,000 by the year 2015 for safer and healthier communities. And how is that campaign going? Are we actually seeing a reduction in the numbers yet? There was a dip in prison population from 22,000 to 21,000, and it's bopped up a little bit. We're close to 22,000 again, so the needle is not moving very quickly, and we obviously are not going to make 11,000 by 2015. But we consider this goal a kind of prophetic vision of what ought to be, and we won't stop working, and we do hope to bring it down a little bit more in the next year. I don't want to be impolitic here, but that goal, I'm sure, was set. It may have been an ambitious goal, but I would imagine that you did not see it as completely unrealistic what has intervened to keep us from moving more clearly towards that goal as a state? Well, I would have to say that legislators and staff of the Department of Correction have been locked into a mentality of lock them up and throw away the key. We've got to be tough on crime mentality for so long that it is just extremely difficult for most of those people who are in decision-making position to change their way of thinking, much less their way of acting. But we are making some progress, especially in support for the treatment alternatives and diversionary program. This is a law that was passed back in 2005, but there was only $1 million allocated in the state budget for the program, and so it was really minimally implemented for six, seven years. Finally, for this budget of 2014-2015, the legislature voted on a bipartisan basis to increase the TAD funding and the treatment alternatives and diversionary funding from $1 million to $4 million. That's very encouraging because it means that legislators recognize the value of alternatives to incarceration, and it's not terrible to help people get the treatment for addictions and mental health issues that they really need rather than send them to incarceration, which will not answer their needs of itself. This is very much apropos of some programs I'm doing just recently about people who are doing some of those TAD, those treatments, alternatives, mental health court, etc., because we have some issues with funding of that right here in Chippewa Valley and things that are statewide have implications for our current courts. So even though we've been leadership on this, funding is an issue in this upcoming election. Absolutely. The mantra of the current legislators across the country these days is not only do we not have the money to invest in such things as treatment alternatives and programs that would really benefit people in the system, coming out of the system and keeping them from going into the system, not only do we not have the money, but we need to cut back. We need to cut back, cut back, cut back. Obviously, 
people don't see and don't recognize that we're really saving money in the long run when we do treatment alternatives instead of simply thinking that we're going to incarcerate addiction and mental health issues out of people. We can cover some of that. I do want to review a lot of what you included in your book. Again, the book is Strength of the Struggle, Insights from the Civil Rights Movement and Urban Ministry by Joseph Elwanger. Joe is with us here today for Spirit in Action. Joe, I was surprised in the book you didn't start by talking about your experience down in the South where you were at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Alabama I'm going to be a little bit more sequential than the book is because in the book you're talking about different foci, you're talking about different emphases of your ministry over the years. And so you didn't start with your experience in Alabama, but I'd like you to start there. I don't think you intended to be some kind of a racial justice firebrand from the start. How did you get led into this ministry, which sees things much more widely uh, about the mission of the church? Well, it really does begin not only with my ministry in Birmingham, but even before that. My father was a pastor in St. Louis in a storefront church, and this was during the Depression. Uh, He was there from 1930 to 1944. And so growing up for the first 11 years of my life in a storefront church among mainly white people living in poverty was a way in which I began to see the world from down under rather than from above. And so I've always had that interest and uh, almost a natural desire to be involved with what I call today people at the edges, those who are financially not well off and all the other things that go with poverty. But if you're asking how did I get to an African-American congregation in Birmingham, that was partly the result of my father being superintendent of the Alabama Upper Florida Field of some 33 black Lutheran congregations in central Alabama and southern Alabama, and he was the vacancy pastor at St. Paul Lutheran in Birmingham, uh, the African-American congregation there uh, in southwest Birmingham. And so when that congregation was without a pastor, needed a pastor, the congregation voted to call a seminarian from the graduating class that was coming out, and I happened to be in that graduating class of 200 from which the seminary committee that determines who gets what calls looked at the 200 persons in the class, and I was really the only one that had some experience, some knowledge, and a great deal of interest in being in an African-American congregation in the South. And then from that setting of an African-American congregation into being involved in justice issues as a pastor and as a congregation, that is the result partly of history that the 1960s, and 1963 specifically, was the time when 
the Southern Christian Leadership Conference especially and Martin Luther King were engaged in challenging segregation, not on economic basis so much as on the moral basis and on the scriptural basis that all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore justice is something that people of faith and Christians specifically should be engaged in and should be involved with. And so when the movement came to Birmingham in 1963, I did feel the nudge of the spirit to become engaged. And then I became even more engaged when the voting rights movement was launched in Selma in January of 1965. There's one piece I wasn't quite sure about. St. Paul, this Lutheran church in Birmingham, you said is an African-American parish. Does that mean that it was all or almost all African-American? You as a, a white man standing in front, was that a big color difference or how did that fit into the congregation? Well, it, well, first of all, it certainly was an African-American congregation, which meant that every member of the congregation was African-American except for its pastor. That certainly was and still is a little bit unusual. Of course, we have some integrated congregations in the Midwest and the North and the East and the West and a few in the South now, but back in the 1950s and 1960s, that was not the case. So it was a bit unusual, although the Lutheran Church and the Roman Catholic Church did, in a few instances, have white priests and white pastors in black congregations. So that was uh, something that uh, whites and blacks in the South were not accustomed to seeing was something that was unusual for both groups to uh, to uh, see but and to accept. Uh, but the interesting thing is that when a white pastor, white priest, really is genuine and authentic in their walk with the people, blacks were much more willing and ready to accept a white pastor than any white congregation would ever be ready and willing to accept a black pastor. And that says a great deal about the rigidity of white racism, and it says a great deal about the ability of the black community over the years right up to the present to be more forgiving and more flexible in accepting whites than the reverse. You point out several of the events that you were part of in Birmingham and in Selma. In one case, I think it was the one white representative out of a group of 73 or 78 or so people marching. Talk about that situation. How did that feel and how did you get included in that situation? The situation that you're referring to, I'm sure, is the march in Selma on Saturday, March 6th, 1965, and that really was 72 white Alabamians who marched on that Saturday morning, and I was in the lead because I was president of the Birmingham Council on Human Relations, which was the organization that really sponsored and launched that march. But I, I would have to say 
add that the picture on the front of my book, Strength for the Struggle, is the picture of me from the backside facing three sheriff's deputies right at the point that this march came to the county courthouse there in Selma on the the corner of Lauderdale and Alabama Avenue. I know Selma, of course, almost like the back of my hand. That march of 72 white Alabamians in solidarity with the voting rights movement in Selma, which had been all black and had started two months earlier, is unique in that, to my knowledge, it is the only march throughout the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s of white Southerners publicly marching to declare their solidarity with the civil rights movement and the rights of blacks to have, in this case, to have a vote and to be able to run for office. It was after the Selma demonstrations and especially after the Bloody Sunday event, which was the very next day, March 7th, that the marches in the South became more integrated with uh, more whites participating, but almost always those were whites from other parts of the country, not white Southerners. So the significance of that march is that we wanted to show that there really were white Southerners who recognized and accepted African Americans as human beings who deserve equal rights like all the rest of us. And uh, we wanted to say that so that it was clear that it wasn't a black versus white rivalry here, but that it was something that affected both communities and that there were indeed whites who were ready to support blacks who were, of course, the people marching and moving to gain their own rights. You explain in the book, as you tell these stories, about the hierarchy of the church. The church was not necessarily real clear in supporting you, and maybe that's an understatement, that the hierarchy had misgivings about it. I'd like to talk a little bit about this. Now, again, you're working within the framework of the Lutheran Church, and there's various branches to the Lutheran Church, which have morphed over the decades since then. But Is it completely clear that St. Paul, that the people at St. Paul Lutheran Church, your members there, were completely supportive of your participation while the church hierarchy had its doubts? Is that a fair statement? That is correct. The president of the district of the Lutheran Church that we were a part of, the president, in fact, sent a telegram to the sheriff of Dallas County when the president heard that I was going to be leading this march in Selma He sent a telegram to the sheriff saying that the Lutheran Church does not endorse what Reverend L. Wenger is doing on this day. That's quite typical of the white church leaders in all denominations that, at that time, considered themselves moderates, as they would describe themselves, and definitely they would say, we are not racist. But their position that they took was that we favor dismantling segregation and a segregated society, and we favor voting rights for African Americans. However, we do not agree with the methodology of Dr. King, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or in the case of the march that I led there on March 6th, 
they would not agree with that. Their position would be that the change should come about as the issue was brought through the courts by lawsuits and then, if necessary, decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States. They simply could not accept nonviolent demonstrations as a method of bringing about change. There's an example of how deeply rooted this was across the denomination. Dr. King makes a statement in his letter from Birmingham City Jail, that famous letter that is very relevant for today. In fact, that letter was written to a dozen clergy across denominations in Birmingham who had put an ad in the paper at the time of the Birmingham demonstrations saying, in effect, that we agree with your attempts to get equality and fairness and justice, but we do not agree with the methods. We do not agree with these demonstrations because they are creating tensions and making the problem worse, not better. That was their close-up analysis of what was happening, and so they really opposed the efforts of Dr. King, and yes, the president of my district did not support me on that day that I led the march in Selma. Maybe we could say it even a little bit stronger, and again, I don't want to besmirch his name, but he was undercutting you. He took an active role in saying, don't listen to this guy. That is exactly the way the members of my congregation in Birmingham saw it, that he was really, as you say, undercutting my efforts and my understand that we were taking that day. And he certainly was. Uh, I think that's the way most people would look at it. Unfortunately, the way he would try to rationalize and justify what he had done is he would have to say, well, I have to serve both the whites in my district who have difficulty with all these changes, and so I'm trying to be, he wouldn't say that I'm trying to straddle the fence here, but uh, he would say, <laughs> I'm, but that, and that would be my way of describing what he was doing. He wanted to be able to say to the segregationists, the white segregationists in his district and his church body, well, at least I tried to say what I could to let you know that I don't totally disown you. Well, you know, that's uh, that's worse than straddling the fence. That is just refusing to stand up and uh, take the risk that would have been involved. If he had said that he supported what I did, I'm sure he would have had the outcry of many, many people in the district, but he could have remained silent. He didn't have to send that telegram. That's how deeply he had his own fears, I guess, of people in his district that obviously did not agree even with the goals that we had in mind, much less with our methods. I guess I want to talk a little bit about denominational divisions here. That was Missouri Synod, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Later on, when you were in Milwaukee, first your church is associated with Missouri Synod, then I don't know. The letters kept changing. I'm aware of LCA and ALC, the American Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church in America, and what we have now, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. 
So there's denominational differences and emphases in these cases. Your father was at a storefront church. Was it actually Lutheran, and or how did you get connected with Lutheran Church, and particularly the Missouri Synod? Oh, yeah, it was Lutheran, and it was Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. That was where I grew up, and that's why I was, you know, humanly speaking, that's why I was in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I grew up in that synod. That evidently also existed, therefore, over in Alabama, which I guess I don't think of Alabama as a strongly Lutheran place. Was it a minority denomination? Were there really much more in the way of Baptists or Methodists around there, I'm assuming? Absolutely. In fact, there's a saying in the black community that if a black person is not Baptist or Methodist, then he's been tampered with. And that could almost say the same of whites, that the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church were the two strong denominations in the white community and in the black community. And Lutherans uh, and Catholics particularly were the least represented. There were a fair number of Presbyterians and Episcopalians, but even they were in smaller numbers than Baptists and Methodists. So you got to be right there at the center. I mean, maybe not right at the beginning of it, because civil rights was going pretty well in the 1950s, and there were significant steps forward in the 1950s and up into the 60s. But you got to be there at a crucial point. I mean, a number of times you traveled along. You were certainly part of a number of situations with Martin Luther King Jr. Any come to mind in particular that were important for you? Well, that is correct. Certainly, I was on the uh, Committee of 20, as it was sometimes called in Birmingham, which was a committee of pastors and business people, and I was the one white person on the committee that met with Dr. King, Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young, James Bevel, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference people who were in Birmingham in 1963 for the demonstrations. Fred Shuttlesworth, of course, was president of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, which is the Birmingham affiliate of uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so I met with them on this committee, and that was certainly a, a wonderful experience. And that's where I got my toes wet, moving in the direction of participating in civil rights demonstrations. Although I did not participate in any of the demonstrations themselves in Birmingham, I did uh, participate in the movement meetings in the evening on this committee of 20 that did the planning for the demonstrations and was really gearing myself up to actually participate. In order to participate in those demonstrations, you had to be ready to be arrested and to face whatever would come as a result. And so it took both a bit of courage and a bit of working out of coverage for your pastoral duties, because if you are not going to be there for the pastoral work for a week or two, uh, need to have some kind of plan to cover. So there were several reasons why I did not jump into the demonstrations, even though I supported them, participated in the most of the nightly meetings, movement meetings that were part of the, the movement, and then participated in some picketing that fall 
when the businesses did not live up to the agreement that they had made with the black community to hire cashiers and to uh, take down the signs on restrooms that separated the white from colored, as they put it in those days. That was the slow development of my participation ultimately in most of those events, the the Tuesday after Bloody Sunday and certainly the final day of Selma to Montgomery March, Dr. King was very much involved in front and center. And the relationship between him and me, of course, was not that deep in those events because he was in the leadership position there and he was the one who had to make all of the speeches and that sort of thing. But there were occasions such as this, the Committee of 20 in, in Birmingham, in the funeral service for three of the four girls killed in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, in occasions like that where I was quite close to Dr. King, where I did have enough of a relationship that he recognized me and I recognized him on a couple of occasions going through the Atlanta airport, for instance, and the like. So that's where you started out, your nine years down in Birmingham as a pastor there. And then you ended up transferring up to Wisconsin. And if I can be so blunt, were you just tired of the warm weather? Is that why you came to Milwaukee? Uh, I was neither tired of the warm weather nor did I relish the cold weather of Wisconsin. And I certainly was not tired of my work as pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church, I really was deeply engaged, loved the people, loved the work. The one reason why I accepted the call, and in the Lutheran Church, the congregation calls a pastor, and the pastor then has the awesome responsibility of determining whether he will accept that call or return the call. So I accepted this call to Cross Lutheran Church in Milwaukee because it was a congregation that found itself in the midst of a black community or neighborhood in the course of about five, six, seven years. The neighborhood had just flipped from white to black. And to the credit of the congregation, they had begun to reach out to the neighbors and a few they had made the, the what was a difficult decision for congregations here in Milwaukee because of the racism that was simply part of the culture of our country and still is. It was difficult to make the decision, but they did to accept and even to uh, truly welcome blacks. But they also found that it was not something that happened easily, and so they wanted a pastor that had some experience in reaching out to African Americans, and that's why they called me. I had been in Birmingham for nine years and had a very good pastoral experience in the congregation that uh, grew from 30 to 300. And, and so they called me because they really wanted to reach out to the community, they said. And so I came because I wanted to see whether it truly is possible for a congregation to become a racially integrated congregation for the church to lead the way in what our country was having such difficulty with, and that is dismantling our segregation 
culture and laws and realities and become not only a desegregated country but an integrated country and so that that's why I came to Cross Lutheran in Milwaukee in nineteen sixty seven. And I just want to note for our listeners, Cross Lutheran, when Joe joined the church, when he he took on as pastor of the church, it was at that point, what, 95% white, but again, surrounded by a black community. That was in 1967. By 2001, the church was 75% black. So this is a major transition that you were at the helm for a major change going on in that church. I do want to remind our listeners that you're tuned in to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find more than nine years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. You'll find link in this case to lwangersbook.com where you can find Joseph Elwanger's book Strength for the Struggle. You also find a place to post comments and we do love two-way communication. So when you visit our site, please post a comment. There's also a place to make donations or you can find an address to mail us one. Click on the donate button. But first of all, I would encourage you to support your local community radio station. Local community radio stations provide a slice of news and music in the United States that we find nowhere else on our horizon. So please start out by supporting them both with your hands and with your wallet. Again, Joe L. Wanger is here today. He's author of a book, Strength for the Struggle, Insights from the Civil Rights Movement and Urban Ministry. And I personally think, Joe, that you probably have written you know, a good 30 or 40 books over the years with all the experiences you have. You encapsulate a lot of it in this collection. I don't get the sense, though, that you really are into tooting your own horn so much, but there is so much history that's captured here. One thing I would just like your perspective on, if, if you could give it to me, is the way religion looked different in the 1950s when you started down at St. Paul Lutheran down in Birmingham and the way religion looks now. I grew up thinking Gandhi was a very religious person who was leading change in the world. I I think back to even abolitionist times back before slavery was abolished that often religious people were leading us away from prejudice and slavery and and into something better. Certainly at the time that you were active in Birmingham, I think that religion was a significant spark, a a major spark, maybe the biggest, most noticeable spark that was active in helping us fight racism. I don't think that that's so clear today, and yet this has been a burning fire that's that's been at your base throughout your pastorate and, and even since then that religion today, if it's considered by young people at all, is more likely to be in a conservative direction. What's been your experience over the decades that you've been serving in that way? Well, I would have to say that it's true that most people in the organized church do not see working for justice and for justice issues, like working on mass incarceration, working on the joblessness working on the racial disparities in school outcomes, academic outcomes and the like. People in the churches do not think of working on these justice issues as part of their faith and part of their witness to the gospel. The majority do not. And that is really sad. And in a very real sense, even 
back in the 1950s and 1960s, even though it was seen that the black church was leading the way in the civil rights movement, it really was, even then, a minority of black pastors and black members who were out there risking their lives and in the leadership. Although they had the support of most of the black community for this, it was then and it is now that it's a minority of congregational members that really see working for justice as an important part of their faith life. There is a very active movement around the country of church members and congregations getting involved in justice issues. The congregation-based organizing movement in Wisconsin, it's Wisdom, in Eau Claire, it's Jonah, in Milwaukee, it's Micah. You know, those are congregations with a few people who are ready to work for justice. And in a certain sense, they're carrying on where Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the South left off. We have a lot of work to do. It's a small minority of folks and of congregations, but it's, I guess it's what always has been. It takes leaders and it takes some vision and courage for people to step out of the box and really work at doing justice. Micah 6.8 is a powerful passage which Jesus referred to in Matthew 23.23, and it's that passage where the prophet Micah says, God says, what, what is it that God requires of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So doing justice is right there in the front of what God expects of us and calls us to do. But you're right, it's a minority of churches and of church members that really take that seriously. I think that a number of young people, and not just young people, uh, many generations of people, have doubts about the integrity of the church, that the church is serving its own needs instead of serving the needs of the people. You've obviously been a faithful member of the church and trying to lead that in a better direction for decades. Are you just impossible to discourage, or have you just seen that much positive direction that you've kept hope alive? Well, I am a person of hope, and I truly believe that, you know, even when we do not win the battle or, or the, I hate to use the imagery of war, but the campaign, when we do not win in the first year, or the second year, or the third year, for instance, of the 11 by 15 campaign to bring down prison population, I'm not about to give up for a couple of reasons. For one thing, as long as the injustices are there, our calling is not to be necessarily successful immediately, but to be faithful in our witness to trying to bring about change. But secondly, I do truly believe that change, which usually comes slowly, change has come, some amazing changes as we look back on our history, that are moving toward justice and a more a nation of more equality than before. Martin Luther King used in several of his speeches the image of the moral arc of the universe, which is long, but it bends toward justice. And we really 
if we believe God is definitely bringing in the kingdom of justice and peace, and we're part of it, we know the direction in which this is all going, even albeit very slowly. You talk about a number of the ways in which the congregations you've been associated with, been pastor of, and I guess with Hephatha, that you're just a member of the congregation. In that case, you, you're no longer leading as pastor. But in these congregations, you've talked about a number of the ways in which, and the phrase you use frequently is, you walk with different people. And so some of the issues that you discuss in your book, Strength for the Struggle, you talk about overcoming sexism and about race issues and gay and lesbian ministry and accepting in refugees and working with those in prison and treatment and helping those who've been incarcerated. First of all, talk about that phrase, walking with. I associate that more likely with evangelical Christians than with Lutherans. Because you've been part and leadership in church, which is largely African-American, has that changed your vocabulary? Does that make you a different kind of Lutheran than many other Lutherans? Well, I'd like to believe that all Christians could and would describe their relationship with people uh, in the world, and especially people with special needs, people at the edges could describe their relationship as being a relationship of walking with. But uh, you're absolutely right. Even denominations that maybe have picked up on that way of talking do not necessarily live it out that well because walking with people means that you really see their value and you do not put yourself above that person, but you put yourself alongside of that person as someone that you recognize you have something to receive from them and by the grace of God you have something to give to them. But I see this as a very basic way in which we must describe our Christian life and our Christian vocation, this walking with. That's why the first chapter of the book is, as you'll notice, the title is Accompaniment as Lifestyle. And accompaniment is just another word for walking with people. The more we see people in prison, people coming out of prison, former offenders, people struggling with addictions, gay and lesbian persons, refugees, immigrants, the more we see them as people created in the image of God and redeemed by Christ uh, and people with whom we have everything in common except maybe some of the disadvantages that they experience, but the more we see that, recognize that, and walk with such people, the more we are living out the gospel, and the living out to the lifestyle and example of Jesus himself, who I think you, the, the way you'd have to describe his life here and his ministry here on earth was a walking with the people, and particularly, particularly those at the edges, the lepers, the tax collectors, women, prostitutes, those were the people with whom he made it a point 
to walk, and certainly that should be our calling today if we're serious about living out the gospel. Can you tell me one or two of the stories about your experience? I think particularly when you were head of Cross Lutheran, when you were pastor there, stories about some of the ministries that your church undertook and the real people, the real experience of, you know, when you're engaging with issues like sexism, the church superiors, again, weren't on the same page as your congregation, allowing women or inviting women into areas of ministry. Could you talk about a couple of the stories, how this really played out, that, or with gay, lesbian ministry, or prisoners? Uh, Flesh it out so that we can see what it really is like for a congregation to step forward. Well, you're, of course, opening up me up for uh, the possibility of uh, dozens of stories and to choose one or two or three is not easy so i would say that people need to read the book because i agree strength for the struggle they should be reading it <laughs> insights from the civil rights movement and urban ministry by joseph elwanger and again there, there's a link on northernspiritradio.org and you, you'll find your way to the book but pick out a couple good tidbits to get them motivated yeah, let, I'll pick out one story because I think this really warms my heart to know, for instance, of a woman in the congregation who would be looked upon, I'm sure, by many, many people in the business world and in the rest of the world as someone who has very little to offer to a business or to the church or to the world. She's you know, not a college graduate and, in fact, not even able to read that well, but a really strong woman who really worked hard all of her life, raised her children and three of her grandchildren, and was so faithful in her life and witness in the congregation that congregation voted her on to the Board of Elders, which is in the Lutheran tradition. Those are the people who assist the pastor in serving communion and reading the lessons and visiting the sick and the like. You know, they're literally next to the pastor in terms of work and role. And here she was someone who was living it out, living out the gospel in spite of being someone who had very menial jobs and very little education, uh, but her witness and her life was just so authentic and so real that people accepted her, affirmed her. Uh, one of the reminders of how deep her life was in Christ uh, is that on a Sunday morning, she often had to work Saturday nights. You know, she'd get off at 7 o'clock in the morning, and she would bring her children or, in later years, her grandchildren to church because that was so important to her. And, of course, having worked all night, she was dead tired, and she would sometimes nod <laughs> in the church service. Anybody who did not know her and what her background was would probably see her as a real pew polisher or somebody who's not very serious, but it's the very opposite. And I guess that's just an example of how if we're walking with people with the openness to receive their gifts, we can recognize some of the strengths of people that the rest of the world would never, never see. To me, 
she is still someone who she's a friend and a supporter of the work and the life and the ministry and the gospel to this very day. I would like a couple of your comments, if you would, about the steps forward. Again, Cross Lutheran in Milwaukee was associated with Missouri Synod, and at a certain point, because some of the steps you were taking, recognition of women's role and other things, were not acceptable to that church structure, you affiliated with different groups of Lutherans, created them, and I think Cross Lutheran is currently ELCA, if I'm not mistaken. Could you give me your perspective on going through those transitions? Was it a case of the local congregation evolving in a different direction, or how did you perceive that change? Well, that change was something that was very deep and very profound, and from my perspective came precisely because we were trying to live out the gospel and not in spite of the gospel, but because of the gospel, and not in spite of our life together as a congregation, but because of that life, and because we were so determined to have the gospel at the center, and not to simply be a congregation that uh, does the Sunday morning ritual, and does everything to try to stay in tune with the world, and its expectations, or even the church hierarchy and their expectations, but uh, we really insisted on being true to the gospel and true to the people with whom we were walking, and it was that was the basis for our insisting on continuing, for instance, to accept women on the Board of Elders, even though we were you know, threatened with being dropped from membership in the Missouri Senate if we did that, and likewise working and walking and even worshiping with people of other denominations. This was another issue that we were frowned upon and threatened by the church authorities because they had a different view of how relationships between denominations ought to be lived out. So that change from a church body that was so constrictive to a church body that was much freer in terms of permitting and encouraging congregations and pastors to live out the gospel was not difficult. It was almost a natural outcome of that struggle to be genuine and authentic in our walk and our life in the gospel as we saw it and as the Spirit led us to see it. Sounds to me like it's a transition from living by the letter, by the law, and a transition to being led by spirit. And that, that was actually being put into action by the people in Cross Lutheran or Hephatha as well. That's a great way of describing it, exactly. In other words, we really insisted on putting the gospel, which is both freeing on the one hand and compelling and challenging on the other hand to let that be the center of our life, not a set of rules or even of doctrines, unless it's a doctrine or a teaching that is very specifically connected with the gospel itself. You know, there's a whole lot we could talk about, Joe, but I did have to ask you one question. You grew up with the traditional Lutheran hymns, 
and one of the things you write about in Strength of the Struggle is the music that was more native, more indigenous, more enthusiastic for the people there. Are your favorite songs still the old hymns that you grew up with, or have your bones changed and, and found space for a different kind of music? Very definitely. Uh, there is a new song that I learned to sing and that we as a congregation learned to sing. And, you know, the songs that are on my mind and my heart are the songs coming out of some of the gospel traditions and even some folk songs. You know, everything from There is a Balm in Gilead to songs such as We Shall Overcome, even the Black National Anthem, which is not exactly in the gospel tradition, but uh, Lift Every Voice is a powerful, powerful hymn. Those are songs that we learned to sing, that the choirs sang, but then the congregation sang, and we even developed a hymnal supplement at Cross Church with some of these songs because we recognized how important they were. If we were going to walk with people for whom these songs were so important and, in fact, conveyed the gospel so beautifully, then we need to be using those songs in our Sunday worship. So we developed what we called the Urban Hymnal Supplement and used it for years. In fact, it's still around and definitely filled a niche for several urban congregations here in Milwaukee and it even got picked up in urban congregations elsewhere in the country. Sounds like a wonderful process of enrichment. I know, Joe, that you have to move on to some other things. I do appreciate so much your taking the time to be with us. Again, we've been speaking with Joseph Elwanger, his recent book, Strength for the Struggle, Insights from the Civil Rights Movement and Urban Ministry. And you'll find a wide range of stories and experiences, witnesses to church evolving, changing, finding the strength to walk with people of all sorts, that none be left outside the beloved body of Christ. Joe, thank you so much for your work on all of the issues, but also the way that you've been part of nurturing MICA, congregational-based activism there in Milwaukee and wisdom nationally. You even helped us kick off Jonah here in the Chippewa Valley of Wisconsin. I really see your life as a low-key, high-octane effort to really make the spirit come alive in all the ways that we do things. And so thank you so much for that work and especially for joining me for Spirit in Action today. Well, thank you for listening to the story, sharing the story, and being a voice for that kind of openness there in the Chippewa Valley toward change and toward honesty and authenticity for people of faith. So thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.